Welcome back to Building Tomorrow for part three of our exploration of the origins of Silicon Valley. Well, so far we've covered two key elements in that story. Innovation requires gathering smart people from around the globe in hubs of knowledge, this case universities, where they are supported as they research and tinker. But innovation also requires money, lots and lots of money. It's impossible to imagine Silicon Valley existing in anything like its current form were it not for the invention of modern venture capital. Fledgling startups need significant money to develop their product and to bring it to market. But given that three quarters of startups fail, giving them that money is a pretty high risk business. However, it's also got high reward potential if you happen to be fortunate enough to invest in the next, you know, Google or Amazon, and you can weather the major failures that will come in between. But that's not all venture capital firms do. They're not just ATMs for startups. I asked Margaret O'Mara, author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, who we heard from last episode, about the role venture capital plays within startups. Yeah. Well, what uh, what that model, the, the, the high-tech venture capital model, is, is different in that it is not just money, it's also mentorship. Yeah. And it's expertise. Um, you know, ARDC, uh, Dorio um, kind of comes into being in the 40s, kind of seeing that there are all these eager young men, smart guys graduating from MIT and Harvard that are have these great business ideas and they banks aren't going to loan them to them. And there's and the electronics industry is exploding in size because mm. of government contracts <laughs> and then the Cold War. And so they see an opportunity to 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 get in the ground floor. But of course, when you have a young, you know, 22 year old engineer <laughs> who's maybe smart as I'll get out and can, you know, d do wondrous things um, uh, technically, but they have no idea how to run a business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what these VCs bring, and we really see this um, in uh, particularly in the, 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 the venture firms that, that emerge in the Valley, whose, whose founding partners by and large come from industry. They are kind of guys who were in industry and then who are trained engineers um, originally. And then they go and they become, um, uh, become investors. And, mm. and, but they are really shepherding and, and mentoring these, these young guys. Yeah. Um, they are showing them, here's how you build a business. Here's how you bring a product to market. You may have this really cool thing, but what are you going to do? How are you going to commercialize it? How are you going to market it? Yeah. They link them in with marketers, with PR people. They link them in with lawyers who can do the contracts. One of the other distinctive service firms that emerges in Silicon Valley that, again, is distinctive to the Valley and, and it helps explain its ability to produce generation of generation of companies is the specialized high-tech law firm. Um, mm -hmm. The original pioneer was Wilson Sonsini, which is still one of the big, big players, um, now a global law firm, but based in Palo Alto and doing, um, you know, really focused on helping these brand new electronics companies incorporate and then go public and do all the things in between. Um, and so that, that the VC is, it's not just writing a check. Yeah. It is it is really showing the entrepreneur how to do what they do, helping and, and oftentimes what's happened until relatively recently is you had the young founder and then with the VC's help they would find someone who was more seasoned, who was adult supervision, who would kind of come in over the over the young person and actually run the joint and sometimes, you know, just ask that young person to, you know, go along their way and, and, and leave it to the, to the pros to, to run the operation. Um, so that is, 
that that is something that, that kind of can fall out of the the startup story a bit, um, and 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 really helps explain the really distinctive role that venture capitalists in the in this industry play in a way that is different from investors in other um, other moments, other industries, other places. There's an excellent description of this relationship between venture capital and startup founders in the book by another one of our guests today, Spencer Ante, who we'll talk to later on. He writes, venture capital firms were organizations with enormous fiduciary resources, but the seasoned operators running them were not daredevils skilled in the art of invention. Conversely, inventors were struggling creative types with no money, trying desperately to become poor businessmen. Now, you could illustrate that point picking almost any startup at random. Odds are it'll be a story about a software developer or an engineer with a brilliant idea, but little sense of how to turn that idea into a successful product. Perhaps the most famous example of this comes from the largest tech company in the world, Apple. Now, unless you've been living under a rock for the last couple of decades, you've heard about how a pair of Steves, you know, Wozniak, the genius programmer, and Jobs, the visionary, built Apple Computer in their garage. But their company might have easily remained a footnote in computing history were it not for Apple employee number three, venture capital investor Mike Markula. Back to Margaret. Yeah, so Mike Markula was it's a great story. He's a he's an Intel guy. So he's sort of again the earlier generation kind of feeds into and shapes the makes the next generation possible. So Intel's, you know, kind of is this is the great sort of business story of the early 70s. Mm. And Markle is in his mid to late 30s. He's retired. He's going to go. He's made a lot of money. Yeah. He's going to just go skiing. He hasn't figured out what he's going to do next. And uh, Apple shows up and Don Valentine, uh, who is another semiconductor industry veteran who um, kind of uh, is agreed to put some money in and he connects – is one of the people that connects Markle into – the two Steves, Wozniak and Jobs. And yeah, he was, you know, he showed Apple how to get out of the garage and actually build a business organization. Mm. Um, you know, the Apple is is a company that has always very successfully positioned itself as kind of a countercultural, think different, you know, we're different than other companies. But you look at the org chart and, you know, Apple got out of that garage because it decided to grow up and run like a business. Um, and it had seasoned business professionals like Mike Markle. It had the best marketing guy in the Valley, uh, Regis McKenna. It had all of these people who were kind of the older <laughs> generation <laughs> who brought seasoned business expertise and, and connections to, um, you know, more established business institutions to, to get it done. And, and yes, you have to have a charismatic founder and an amazing technical co-founder, Jobs and Wozniak, you know, that that were, were that, um, they were extraordinary and, 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 you know, that is one reason Apple kind of emerged from the pack, but it also was because, you know, one of the things that made Steve Jobs extraordinary is he saw from the very beginning that he needed to, you know, get these seasoned pros on board and working for his company. Clearly, venture capital plays an important role in the startup economy that goes beyond simply bankrolling needy founders. But to show just how important that role is, it's worth considering what startup financing was like back before the rise of modern venture capital, back before you could go put your hand out at any one of dozens of outfits on the famous Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto. I asked Margaret to describe what that world was like. So what what is the funding model for research prior to that and prior to the rise of you know modern venture capital yeah well 
it, it was a lot smaller pool, I can tell you that <laughs> okay. much. But it was it was private. It was, you know, when you go to sort of before World War II, where the money for um, the the big players in research of any kind was it was industrial research labs. It was um, mm. companies like General Electric or AT and T that were you know funneling some of their profit into research laboratories that were developing next generation products. Um, it was a very different model. At the university level, there the money was coming from private foundations, from private individuals. And in um, in industry, you saw instances of what was um, in some earlier eras called adventure capital, <laughs> where you had, say, in early uh, the early auto industry in Detroit um, and other cities in the upper Midwest in the 1890s, 1900, that the very first, you know, where people like the, the Dodge brothers and Henry Ford are getting their money from uh, rich people that aren't them and, and who are willing to be, you know, investors in these new high-tech ventures building these automobiles, these crazy horseless carriages that don't really have a market yet. Um, so you have seed investors um, that are operating in a very similar way. Mm. Um, you also, you know, and, and we have we have venture capital of some kind playing, you know, you could you could kind of take it back all through human history. You know, where, how do young, untested entrepreneurs, uh, you know, who want to bring a product to market, they got to go to someone who has who, yeah. <laughs> who made money yeah. in an earlier generation in order to do that and is willing to take a risk. And oftentimes they aren't going to conventional banks. These aren't guys who can go to get bank loans. They have to go find someone else. So venture capital, high-tech venture capital, as we know it, really comes into being kind of it, at the same time as the growth of the, the high-tech electronics industry in the post-war period as we know it. Um, and it comes into being in some of the same places, Boston and the Bay Area. And it is, you know, the, the venture, venture capitalists are, um, you know, really – they're, they're the middlemen in some, you know, originally they are the people who are finding, connecting old money with new deals. Um, and some of the, the money that funds the earliest commercial, the commercial ventures, early startups in both Boston and the Bay Area are, is coming from families like the Rockefellers and the Whitney's. Um, they're the, the old money of the Gilded Age is, is the funds, funds the new ventures of the electronic age. At the time, it was much harder to get access to one of the handful of wealthy dynasties able and willing to invest in so risky an asset as a new venture. You had to know somebody who knew somebody who maybe worked for Cornelius Vanderbilt or Andrew Carnegie or someone of that like. It was a very limited, opaque, and privileged process. But all of that began to change in earnest in 1946 when a man named Georges Doriot founded the first modern venture capital firm, the American Research and Development Corporation. It was a radical idea, a publicly traded investment firm that would give ordinary investors the ability to back startups. I've asked Spencer Ante, a managing director at FTI Consulting and the author of the definitive biography of Dorio, titled Creative Capital, George Dorio and the Birth of Venture Capital, to tell us more about this really quite fascinating individual. Yeah, so basically one of the main things I write about in my book is how George Dorio was the founding father of modern venture capital. And what I mean by that is that he's the first person who essentially ran uh, you know, an institutional venture capital fund, not a family office. Um, and he also played a key role in getting the venture capital community to see itself as a as a real industry. So he was um, both um, a pioneer in founding um, 
the institutional model for venture capital, which made a lot more money available over time to entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was also, and this is another thing that attracted me to him in, as, a, as a book subject is he was kind of the leader of a social and an economic crusade. Uh, and he saw himself very intentionally as, as that, as that voice, as that leader who would sort of articulate, you know, the principles of the industry, the practices of the industry, why it's important. Um, and he, of course, he didn't do this alone. He was, you know, coming out of World War II when just one ARD was founded. He was supported by some prominent um, industrialists in New England. The president of MIT uh, was a backer. Ralph Flanders was a senator from Vermont who was the guy who later went on to criticize Joe McCarthy for the first time in public. All these individuals came together to realize that after the war, the economy needed uh, a way to way to get back to, to get a boost essentially because mm. um, the essentially the economy had been taken over by the war machine so they saw this need for taking raising money and and funneling it into these small companies that through their experience they'd observed were the were the, really the main engines of economic growth and job creation uh, in New England and they thought they could apply this to the larger country uh, after the war. And that was sort of the impetus for American research and development, which George Doria was the first founder and president of. Now, Doria really is a fascinating figure, and you, you do a great job in the book telling his story. But for our audience, like, um, where does he come from? Where does he get the idea for uh, ARD or you know the American Research and Development Corporation? And what give us a better sense of what is that vision that he has for venture capital as an industry? Yeah, it's, it's great. It's a great story. Um, you know, everything kind of goes back to your, your family, you know, in a sense. So when I researched him, I learned that his father, uh, first of all, he was born in France. So his father uh, was an engineer and his father was, built one of the first automobiles for the Peugeot Motor Company hmm. in the early 20th century. So he had he was, you know, when he was growing up, he would he would literally go to the, the automobile factory. And he worked in the automobile factory and he would learn about like how to, how to make stuff, how to build stuff. And, and in addition to that, his father also was an entrepreneur. So his, his father, Auguste, left the Peugeot Motor Company and founded his own car company called Dorio Flandrin. And uh, he created some of the fastest, most innovative automobiles uh, in France. Uh, and, and, and the European market um, in the early 20th century. Unfortunately, World War I broke out and it destroyed the company. Uh, and that's what led George to come over to America uh, to seek a better future where he uh, gained acceptance to the Harvard Business School. Hmm. That's that's pretty cool. Okay, so um, so he has you know his his father's kind of interest in entrepreneurial activity. He's getting business training at Harvard. Um, and, and my understanding is he was not it was not intended for him to stay in America. He was supposed to come and study and learn and then go back and I guess join back up with new family ventures. Is is that correct? Well, you know it wasn't clear. Um, he definitely was very serious. Um, about realizing that there was really nothing to do in Europe after World War One, it was you know it was decimated. Yeah. Um, so he came here, 
and he basically just fell into the he fell into the culture he fell into the country and 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 it was a boom time right it was the 20s he, he mm. was attending hbs in the 20s so he quickly realized like america was the place to be at that at that point in, in our history and you know the global sort of history um and he and he just was very ambitious and he started to work on wall street and he got a work a job in an investment bank uh at kuhn Loeb, which is one of like the most prominent successful investment banks in the early 20th century and he kind of like started he built his career from there he went on to become uh you know a professor at harvard business school um and not only was he a professor but he you know as he gained more prominence in the business community he started becoming um, a director of many corporations. So the combination of his um, business school training and Wall Street experience, uh, and then his academic background coupled with his experience on the boards of these companies gave him a very like, well-rounded and, and deep and solid understanding of how businesses run. And that was the basis of his becoming a venture capitalist. And, you know, this idea for um, American Research and Development Corporation was, my understanding, is pretty radical at the time. And a lot of folks were skeptical. I mean, they told him this was a fool's errand. It was going to fail. Um, uh, so I, I, I guess where does he get the idea from? He's on these boards and he thinks there's a better way to do this. And then what kind of pushback did he get at first? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the idea and this is a, a big sort of um, revelation in my research. Uh, a lot of the this early thinking about venture capital grew out of the Great Depression. So, um, like I said, there was obviously the boom time, then mm -hmm. the, the big crash, and then there was the depression in the 1930s. And he was observing all this. And, you know, I mentioned those other individuals in New England. They were all trying to figure out how do we get out of the depression? What do we need to do? Um, and what they observed was that the way to do it was to start like small businesses. So there was a lot of um, industry that came up in New England uh, during the Great Depression, uh, like the shoe industry was um, incredibly um, important to New England. Um, there's other examples of industries that kind of early manufacturing that grew out of the Great Depression. And so these these people that I mentioned um, realized that the way the way to the way to jumpstart the economy was to invest in you know figure out a way to invest in more of these small businesses mm -hmm. essentially. Um, and they they put together a plan to start what was ARD um, in the late 1930s, and they they were actually about to do it, but then history intervened again, and World War II broke out. <laughs> And that pretty much put it on the shelf for a few years. Um, but when the war, and this is another thing that kind of uh, the other big revelation in my research was that war in a sense, you know, World War II is credited with um, helping affect many changes in our, in American culture and industry and society, um, you know, integration between races, um, you know, the invention of the, you know, the new, the, the atom bomb. And, you know, what I learned is that venture capital or the idea of like applying technology and money uh, towards, towards innovation 
really grew out of World War II because Dorio was the head of the Quartermaster Corps, hmm. which was the branch of the military responsible for developing equipment for the soldiers. And he was a genius at like logistics and manufacturing and, and product development. And he figured out a way to marshal all these resources and these incredibly smart people in, in the country to essentially invent a whole new series of products for soldiers. Like, so they invented famously um, uh, uh, bulletproof armor. For, for soldiers and for, for um, pilots in the, in the Air Force. They invented K-rations. They did a whole bunch of research around science and, and nutrition. They invented like new types of shoes for the soldiers because they were fighting, you know, in incredibly brutal winter conditions and, and, they're, and they were getting, a lot of soldiers were getting frostbite. Mm. So they had to figure out how to build new shoes. They had to develop sunscreens. Um, and, and the list goes, goes on and on and on. And so, that's where he learned how to become a venture capitalist. Hmm. In, in, as, a, as a general, he left the military as a general in World War II, and um, he, he just applied all those lessons that he learned in the military to, to the uh, peacetime economy. It's fascinating to think of a uh, so so far we're not even to the part where he starts ARD yet, but he has he's a, he's an immigrant um, who goes to Harvard Business. Uh, school who works on Wall Street is, uh, you know, a corporate executive, essentially on corporate boards, and now he's an, a military general, and that's that's all just in you know <laughs> the the first half of his life. That's pretty impressive. Um, okay, so it, the war's done, and he wants to apply the kind of the skills and the um, uh, you know venture model uh, that he learned in as a quartermaster to the private sector afterwards, and he starts ARD. Um, it's considered this kind of risky venture. You mentioned the book, um, you know, the inventor, uh, I forget his first name, but Kettering, uh, tells him he'll go bust in five years. I mean, so he expects him this to be a ruinous venture. They'll lose all their money. Uh, it's just not going to work. Um, but ARD holds in, holds in there for a few years and it is a few years before they get their big, their big hit. You know, they, they're betting on a bunch of companies, one of them goes gangbusters, and it's kind of the proof of concept for the model. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so what they were trying to do had never been done before. So obviously, people were very skeptical of it, rightfully so. But, you know, he was a visionary, so he, he, he kind of saw into the future. Um, and what he saw was that the the economy was really going through a major transformation, uh, you know, from, you know, in the early 20th century, the economy was dominated by these large kind of conglomerates like Standard Oil and U.S. Steel. Um, and coming out of the war, you saw that the shift towards these startups and that the startups were going to be the ones that really, um, you know, powered the economy um, in, the, in the second half of the 20th century. So, but it took time to prove this out. So, like you said, they invested in a number of companies. They actually incorporated ARD as a publicly traded company. And so they would, they were getting a lot of scrutiny by, you know, public shareholders who were, you know, watching them spend a bunch of money on these companies and invest in them, but they didn't see a lot of fruits. But that was one of the things that people didn't understand um, back in those days was that it actually takes time to build a business. And the business model will shift 
numerous times over the course of like five, six, seven years. Um, and so what ended up happening is they invested in this company called Digital Equipment Corporation, which was founded by um, two engineers who helped develop computer technology for the U.S. military. Okay. Again, comes back to the military. Um, Ken Olson uh, worked at MIT in a, in a, in a very well-known computer lab. Um, he saw an opportunity to start a new computer company that would challenge like the mainframes of IBM. He wanted to build these smaller, easier to use um, computers um, to compete against IBM. So Dorio uh, and ARD funded the company. They invested seventy thousand dollars in it. I think it was nineteen fifty-seven. Um, you know, like any other startup, they had a lot of fits and starts, but they actually ended up making a really good product. Started catching on with scientific, um, technical, technical communities, and you know, five, six, seven years later, the company was actually starting to make some serious revenue, and then everything kind of like turned. Um, they had a lot of other good investments in companies that made, um, you know, nuclear atom smashers and, um, you know, they invested in George Bush's um, oil development company, Zapata, um, like a lot of interesting, you know, medical device companies that were very innovative, but digital equipment was, was the star of the portfolio. And, and it went public in the sixties and the $70,000 investment became worth over $400 million when digital went public. And that's really when the whole thing exploded. That was what I say was the first home run in venture capital. And it proved that you could take small amounts of money, investing them in these companies combined with this management advice we talked about, and over time, you nurtured, you built. He was a builder. That's how he saw himself. He wasn't a speculator. He was very like vocal about the dangers of flipping things for profit in the short term. Mm -hmm. He was a really big believer in building things for the long term. If you work hard, you build great products, financial rewards will come over time. This has all become kind of um, almost conventional wisdom now. But in the 50s and the 60s, it was nobody knew what the hell they were doing. And he was the guy who really helped pioneer that. So after digital equipment went public, all of a sudden, people woke up. The, 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 the general public woke up. The, the financial community, you know, Wall Street woke up. Um, and they realized, wow, this, this could be like, this, this could be a big deal mm -hmm. for people. And for the economy. And so that kind of like kickstarted a whole nother era of innovation. But George Dorio didn't get American research and development up and running without a fight. Indeed, throughout the entire history of the company, it was locked in a series of running battles with the Securities and Exchange Commission. That's the federal regulator for the stock market and investors. The SEC is, after all, a political creature. And so every four or eight years, a new raft of presidential appointees would take charge and cast their bleary eyes towards ARD, wondering what shenanigans this novel style firm must be up to. Let's go back to Spencer. Yeah, so going back to the theme of nobody knew what this whole venture capital thing was. The regulators were part of that too. The SEC was the, uh, you know, 
a constant source of anger and frustration for Dorio because he felt like they didn't understand the business and they were constantly trying to um, muck around in, in the business and, and kind of, you know, uh, which would cause a lot of problems. So one of the, you know, there was two main issues. One issue was around valuation. The SEC wanted, um, cause they were publicly traded. The SEC had, um, regulatory authority over publicly traded companies. They wanted them to disclose more information about, um, the valuations of these companies and, and like essentially proprietary financial information, which would never be disclosed, um, today. So that was one battle they fought, but the bigger battle, was over what the SEC thought were conflicts of interest over um, ARD giving its employees stock options in both its portfolio companies and ARD. The SEC believed that that presented a potential conflict of interest. So that was really the main issue that led to the demise of ARD. Um, and, you know, we can get into that, but th those are the two big battles they fought. And at one point, the, the SEC um, did a, like a surprise raid on the, on the ARD offices in Boston, which really pissed off Tori. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so there's that battle, which and let's get to that in a second, where it really does lead to the decline of ARD and the rise of a new style of of corporate structure for for venture capital. Um, but before we get there, I, I was struck real early on that there was actually this law passed in the you know, aftermath of the stock market crash and the Great Depression that banned investment companies from owning more than three percent of another company. Um, and ARD, ARD had to get that – they actually lobbied to get that law changed to like 9.9%. Why was that law such a barrier to venture capital? Why did they have to have it changed? Yeah. You know, when a company, you know, is going to get an investment from a venture capitalist, you know, the, the typical stake that they give up today in, a, in an initial round of venture capital is like usually 10 or 20%. Um, but by the time a company goes public, the majority of its stock is is owned by um, outside shareholders. Um, you know, ARD famously got gruff for its initial investment in in digital equipment because that seventy thousand dollar investment they got seventy percent of the company. Mm. That would never happen today. Um, a company would never give up that much equity, but um, you know, if you're going to like invest all this money in a company, you want to have a, a significant stake in it. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to do it. You're not going to benefit from it if it does do well. So that was really the problem there. So let, let's jump now to the big showdown between the Securities Exchange Commission and kind of the death knell for ARD. And my understanding, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, it had to do with whether or not you know, venture capital officers sitting on startup boards, whether they were allowed to have stock options in client companies. Uh, is that is that right? Is that how the, what the SEC had a problem with? Yeah. They thought that the employees of ARD, if they had stock options in their portfolio companies, that it could potentially present a conflict of interest between their duty um, as 
um, employees of ARD and their duty as um, fiduciaries of the portfolio companies. Um, they never really gave a great example of, of how it could sort of present like a real conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, kind of angered Dorio. Um, and they never, Dorio felt like they never really took the time to understand um, how, why, you know, why they were doing this and how they operated. And so it was a long running battle. And there were times in which he, he was close to actually cutting a deal with the SEC over this, but various things kept getting in the way. Like the one, there was one individual who ran the SEC that, that actually did invest time in trying to understand the business, but then he left the SEC. Mm. So then a new guy came and he had to start over from scratch. Um, and he basically just ran out of time because in addition to not, the reason why the stock auction issue was so real was because, um, you know, there were, before the SEC brought the hammer down, there was a few people who actually got stock in Digital Equipment Corporation. They ended up becoming really rich, mm. okay? Mm-hmm. And the ARD employees who didn't get stock in Digital Equipment were jealous, of course, and envious. And and then when they stopped the, you know, ARD from being able to give them more options, all of a sudden, um, some of the, the people, the investment professionals were like, you know, forget about this. Like, I'm going to go, um, I'm going to go start a, a limited partnership and, and run my venture capital firm as a limited partnership. And that became a competing structure in the late sixties. And so when you had a limited partnership, you, the, the SEC didn't regulate you. And so you could give options, um, to, your employees um, and they could sort of like benefit from uh, their participation in helping to grow these companies. Because if you were a VC and you were helping to grow like XYZ startup and they went public, the founders of the companies would like do incredibly well, but you felt like you got screwed because you didn't get really anything out of it other than your salary. Mm. So they essentially that some people in the industry realized there was a better way to structure venture capital companies through limited partnerships, this, this, this comp- it became a compensation problem. And so the best talent at ARD, um, when they realized that Doriel wasn't going to be able to develop a solution to this, mm-hmm. they started leaving the firm. So famously, there was a guy named Bill Elfers, who was the number two guy at ARD. He left and he started a company called Greylock, which is um, one of the most successful venture capital firms operating in today in in silicon valley um you know he started as a limited partnership um dorio actually tried to recruit tom perkins who went on to found kleiner perkins and one of the reasons tom perkins didn't want to join ard although he respected dorio enormously and said dorio was his the second most important mentor in his life after dave packard mm-hmm. from Eula packard he didn't want to do it because he knew he couldn't make a lot of money so he started kleiner perkins as a limited partnership um, and that's kind of what happened with a couple other employees too. They left and they went on to start other venture capital firms or run other venture capital firms. Like Fidelity Ventures was run by ARD alumni and went on to do very well for itself. 
can think of this revised venture capital structure that's now the universal norm as a kind of regulatory arbitrage. Arbitrage is the word economists use to describe how, say, companies will move across state lines to find more favorable regulations or lower taxes. Las Vegas is a famous example. Regulatory arbitrage means that we built a city in the middle of a literal desert crazy. Well, that was the only state where casino gambling was legal at the time. But in the case of venture capital, their need to arbitrage around a backwards SEC had huge unintended consequences. That's because while both ARD and its successors both gave money to startups, there was a fundamental difference between them. Anybody could buy a share of ARD on the stock market, but only the already wealthy the kind of millionaires whom the SEC calls accredited investors, were allowed to invest in the new venture capital firms. Now, the SEC thought it was protecting ordinary mom-and-pop investors, but what it actually did was cut them off from the highest possible investment returns in the American economy over the past half century. Yes, it would be foolish for retail investors, as folks like you and I are called, to put all of our money in venture capital. But these high-risk, high-reward investments should be a slice of our retirement funds and the like. That's because the returns over a 30-year period, annualized at perhaps 20 to 25%, are significantly higher than what you'd expect from a vanilla index fund, which runs approximately half of that. It's hard to quantify what that means, but I think it's suggestive that if you look at a graph showing wealth inequality, the moment when the rise in inequality starts to soar is in the late 1970s, early 1980s, which just so happens to be exactly when venture capital investment really took off with the help of the new style venture funds. Also the moment when it was access to that venture capital was barred to retail investors. This cuts against a common narrative about inequality that's the natural result of too much capitalism. Instead, it suggests that ill-advised government policy led to too little capitalism, cutting off the entire middle class from the most profitable capital investments. Indeed, on that point, we can look at how well a certain segment of investors did with venture capital. Because just as venture capital became gated, these institutions were given access. Talking here about university endowments and pensions, both of which were barred from significant investing in venture capital until the 1970s, when Congress passed a relatively obscure law called the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA for short. I asked Margaret to explain. Yeah, so ERISA was passed in 1974, and it, it 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 its chief purpose, you know, again, like uh, high tech wasn't the chief yeah, reason that that law was passed no. in any means, but it was a it was had to do with employee pension funds and kind of in it, 1974 again, not a great year for the American economy, um, and so it was trying to protect as the stock market is just in the tank, um, trying to protect employee pension. F- pension fund investors or pension funds from being kind of squandered by, you know, bad investments. Um, and what it did is it really limited, it kind of created this, this category of risk investment that pension funds weren't allowed to invest in. And into that category of risk, risk investment, investment fell most early stage electronics and 
you know, computer hardware and software companies. And so actually this is, um, this is a story where, um, you know, oftentimes we think of like Valley people and, and, and venture capitalists as like not having, you know, kind of doing their own, doing their own thing out in California, not, you know, not messing with the halls of Congress, but this is a great lobbying story (laughs) where, um, the, uh, the newly formed national venture capital association, the trade association of venture capitalists, which was again, a community so small that, um, the, the first meeting of the, of the, of the association occurred in the red carpet room of O'Hare airport. (laughs) It was like about 30 guys. (laughs) Um, So there just weren't that many people. And they decided, look, we, this is, um, you know, we have this really inhospitable um, environment for uh, all these sort of laws in Washington, not just, um, not just these restrictions on pension fund investment, but also um, the capital gains tax rate, which at the time was really, really high, um, were kind of quashing, um, uh, really making it hard for them to raise funds. Um, and and so they go to Washington and they start lobbying Congress. They really did not know what they were doing. They <laughs> told me that some of the people who were instrumental in that um, it told me later, like, we, we just had no clue. Like, if we had any idea what we were doing, we would have, we would have been embarrassed, you know, to, to, to you know, I look back on what I did in the beginning. I just didn't know which congressman to go yeah. to, didn't have any kind of professional lobbyists that were, you know, <laughs> helping them out. Um, they just were showing up and being like, can you just cut this tax rate for us, please? And they're like, what? We don't, you know, who are you? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, long story short, this kind of dedicated lobbying effort that, that also kind of helps seed in the mind of lawmakers who it's the late 70s. They're trying to figure out how do we get the American economy out of the tank. And you have these venture capitalists and you have electronics industry and executives, too, that are also going and lobbying Washington and saying, hey, we are the new – we're the future. And what can you do policy-wise to make – this future happen. What you can do is you can lessen the restrictions on what pension funds and other institutional investors where they can put their money. You can free up capital for us. And you also can lower the capital gains tax rate so that there isn't this huge penalty for investing and, you know, getting a hit. Like you, you, yeah, you want yeah. to, you know, create an incentive for um, capital to flow. And so over, you know, that kind of the combination of that and kind of the timing of lawmakers of both parties really, really wanting to do something to jumpstart the economy helps in 1978 and 79 changes a, a decrease in the capital gains tax rate and uh, the new um, ERISA law that allows pension funds and other institutional investors to invest in quote unquote risk capital, including electronics. Um, I, you know, a lot of the VCs I talked to were like, yeah, the capital gains tax reductions were absolutely instrumental. Um, I think that there, I think the jury's kind of, that the evidence doesn't totally stack up in terms of, um, how, how that did, but I'll tell you what it did. It was a huge psychological shot in the arm and look, the market's all about psychology, right? Um, but on the pension funds, that was absolutely critical. Um, it's pretty clear. And there's been a, the research that has been done on what effect this, these just de- deregulation had, um, on the kind of opening up a pool of venture capital, um, Really, I think there's some pretty strong, strong correlation there. Um, and again, it kind of just changes the atmosphere. It kind of creates this, okay, these are really, these are good investments. These are sound investments. Let's go for it. And then it's, of course, what happens in 79, 80, 81? It's the personal computer. <laughs> Apple goes public in 1980, like boom, you know, and off to the races we go. 
I also asked Spencer about ERISA reform, and he gave me some startling statistics about just how large and how quick an impact the rule changes had. Yeah, so what happened in like the late 70s is that um, after some lobbying by pension fund managers and entrepreneurs, the U.S. Labor Department clarified what, what it called the prudent man rule mm. of the Employment Retirement um, Security Act. The old, basically what it meant was the old rule held that pension fund managers could only make investments that, quote, a prudent man would make. So that meant a lot of pension fund managers avoided venture capital. When they, when they softened it, it meant fund managers could take into account you know, things like the diversification of an entire portfolio when determining prudence of an investment. So that did open up the floodgates to venture capital. I'll just give you one data point. In 1978, there were 23 venture funds that managed about $500 million. Five years later, there were 230 firms overseeing $11 billion. Were it not for ERISA, pension funds would be in even worse shape than they currently are, and university endowments would be much smaller, with all kinds of significant knock-on ramifications. It's no accident that Harvard's endowment was funded in 1974, but its cumulative rate of return since then is approaching double the return of the S&P 500. Not because the managers are some kind of geniuses, but because they have access to investments that ordinary investors do not. The state restricted access to venture capital investing to the already wealthy, contributing to the rise of wealth inequality, but without receiving any of the blame for these disastrous policy decisions. Do I sound angry? I hope so. I'm feeling real punchy right now. There have been efforts to reform the accredited investor rules at the SEC by the Obama administration, most notably the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act in 2012. Get it? jobs, which would allow small dollar investors to crowdfund startups, kind of like Kickstarter, but for angel investing. However, the rules only went to it into effect in 2016, so the jury's still out. It was only a partial reform. It still comes with a raft of restrictions on how much crowdfunding a company can accept and all kinds of regulatory hurdles to jump through. Still, it was a step in the right direction, baby step though it may be. And we are desperately in need of reform. Modern-style venture capital used to be a uniquely American phenomenon, but that has been changing as other countries change their investment laws to try and match our success. Venture capital is offshoring. We reached a tipping point in just the last few years where the U.S. is no longer the destination for a majority of the world's venture capital. It's flowing at much faster rates to China, Singapore, Canada, and all over the globe. So I asked Spencer what he thought the global future of venture capital would look like. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think this is another area where Doriel was a visionary. He had a famous, he had a lot of famous quotes that people would always like kind of raise here and there. One of them was creativity knows no boundaries. He saw early on um, that good ideas can come from anywhere. Um, And so he he was a he was a leader in what I would call globalization. Um, so two things he did that were significant in that regard. He helped found INSEAD, which is like the first you know global business school in Europe. You know, Dorio was one of the one of the first uh, people to understand the importance of globalization and this notion that good ideas can come from anywhere. And he he sort of acted on that by founded in, founding INSEAD and um, an early um, European venture capital firm, um, and so, but in some ways he was he was ahead of, he was too ahead of his time, you know, uh, which is kind of another theme of Dorio, like, you know, 
Uh, it's great to be a visionary, but timing, if you get too far ahead of like, um, you know, the, the world that, you know, kind of blows up, blows up in your face sometimes. I think what we've seen over the last decade is, is a realization of the power and the potential of global innovation. You see a lot of new companies popping up on the scene that aren't based in America that are really having a big impact on the global economy. I think Alibaba is a really good example of that. Um, Skype was founded in Europe. Um, India and China are, you know, funding a lot of interesting companies. Brazil is another emerging area of innovation. And so I think that's a long-term trend. Silicon Valley will always be the epicenter of innovation, but it doesn't mean that over time, more and more interesting companies will be coming out of different places. And I think we'll see that play out in the coming years. We will see indeed. I hope you've enjoyed this three-part series about the origins of Silicon Valley. I know I have. There is a key underappreciated thread running through all three stories, the importance of deregulation. You see, it was the liberalization of our immigration laws in the 1960s that led to a wave of global talent from around the world choosing to come here, giving us the knowledge and expertise needed to build Silicon Valley. It was a decision the government made to fund private researchers at universities like Stanford University, instead of clustering them at government-run research labs as other countries did, that built Silicon Valley. And deregulatory reforms like the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, which got the government out of the innovation-stultifying patent-holding game, and the ERISA reforms of 1974 and 1979, they resulted in massive venture capital investment into nascent fields like biotech and the internet. Without these changes, it's hard to imagine Silicon Valley having become synonymous with innovation and creative disruption. Until next time, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.